It's great to see you. My name is Luke. If we've not met yet, I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and it's good to be here with you this morning. It's very good to teach this passage. I've been enjoying this, and I know it was a long passage. It's kind of different for us to read all the way through it. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we don't typically do that. Typically, we will walk through the passage as it parses itself out and kind of unpack it and let it teach us. But sometimes you will come across a passage where it's easier and more effective to look at the tree instead of work through all of the leaves. And this happens to be one of those passages. But certainly, as Chris read it out loud and as you guys followed along, you started to pick out a few things here and there. Maybe a theme popped off the page, a couple patterns, maybe a word or two. I want you to keep those in your mind as we walk through this and keep the Bible or your app open on that passage because we will refer back to it. I also want you to consider an old myth, a very old myth as far as mythology goes. It involves an old king of Corinth. His name is Sisyphus. Have y'all ever... Ever heard of him? Okay, he got punished by the gods, not for having an emasculating name, which he should have been, because it sounds a lot like sissy. (laughs) And if I was the king of any nation, I would make everyone call me Jack Bauer or you die, you know? So Sisyphus got in trouble with the gods because he himself wanted to be glorious. And if you know anything about mythology, the gods were all about being glorious above all the other gods. He wanted to be glorious. He wanted to be like a god, so he was punished. And his punishment was this. He would perpetually push a boulder up a hill. You've probably seen pictures of this, or this um, portrayed in some way, shape, or form. Up a hill, a long hill. And when he would get to the top of the hill, his reward was to watch that boulder roll all the way down the hill. He would walk down there and start all over again for eternity, right? So he probably had great big shoulders, this guy, Sisyphus. Now, as I read it and as I remember this myth, I feel like it's a good commentary on who we are today as people who grab for glory, who overreach for glory. We do a lot the same thing, just like Sisyphus, overreaching, looking for high visibility, looking for high value with people. In other words, we try to establish ourselves as glorious. And I think it gives us a great workout as well. I'll explain. You and I, when we were designed, engineered. We were actually engineered to be attracted to glory, to be drawn to glory. I mean, we see two people walking around in the garden and the very earliest of our narrative of of reality and history, and they walked with God himself in the cool of the day in the garden, and they were satisfied. And, And not to overanalyze the word satisfied, but that means that nothing could be added to it. No amount of peace could be added to the peace they already had. No amount of joy could be added to the joy they already held because they were utterly and totally topped off. They were satisfied. Satisfied with God's glory as it radiated out and they could see it in his character, in his gentleness, in his love, in his creation, in his plan, and in his will. But then we also know in the story there was a pivot somewhere, wasn't there? You see, they got it in their mind, our original parents. They entertained the thought that they could be more satisfied, more. And that would require stealing just a little sliver of God's glory for themselves. This is the lie of the dragon that we see come into the garden. Do you really need his glory to be satisfied? Can you not get for yourself what you've been getting from him? Are you really satisfied? 
And this is the bloodline that you and I are from, a cracked version of Adam, who looks a little bit more like Sisyphus than he does his original design, I guess. And now you and me, just like the mankind before us who's been around, we push the boulder up the hill over and over again, looking for satisfaction at the top of the hill, looking for glory ourselves. But when we get to the top of the hill, we realize we're just not all that glorious. And we're also not that satisfied. So the boulder rolls all the way to the bottom of the hill. Glory is a word that I'm going to be using a lot today. And just to give you a quick half sentence of what it is, it is more than this, but it is not less than this. To be glorious, to be highly visible, and to be highly valuable. Of course, to you and me, it's so much more than that, but it, again, it's not less than that. And we see in the Bible, and we know as Christians, that God is glorious. He has glory. We see it in creation. We see it all the way through his story, how he appears repeatedly to his people, how he is good to his people. I think we even see his glory most clearly as he comes, lives with us, dies, lives again. I think it's the gospel that shows us with great clarity how glorious our God really is. But when we are not satisfied, when we are not satisfied with that level of glory, then like Sisyphus, we overreach and we have to construct our own because there is no alternative. There's no third option. Either God is glorious or we must become glorious to a certain degree. There's no vacuum. There's no in-between. And so in today's passage, the one that Chris just read, Jesus reveals that broken Adam, that Sisyphus in all of us. We find him today doing something very cool at an interesting feast. Right? About six months after another interesting feast, whenever he fed the 5,000. This is happening about six months after that. And we see very quickly in this passage that Jesus finds himself to be the center of great debate and disbelief. Right? Did you pick that up? I counted no less than 12 opinions cast on who Jesus was. A lot of different ideas, opinions, disagreement, debate. In fact, we're slapped in the face from the very get-go over the fact that his brothers don't believe in him. Did you catch that, that little back and forth? It's not by mistake. John wanted you to catch that. Not even his brothers. His brothers did not believe that the claims that Jesus was making were true, but they did like the miracles, and they believed that those were really happening. They did believe in the miracles. In fact, I think they benefited from it. Most scholars would agree amongst themselves that to some degree, the brothers were finding a benefit of sort in the fact that Jesus was doing miracles in and around that area. I don't know how that would look. I think it'd be more clear to us if we lived back then. I know that all publicity is good publicity, right? So something helped them along. They believed in the miracles. They did not believe in him. You know, and there's also, if you caught it, just a little edge of mockery in their tone. Did you see that? You know what's funny? A little bit of a rabbit trail I won't entertain very much. James and Jude were two of these brothers, by the way, who later on went on to write a book of the Bible apiece. Pretty interesting who that company was. Now, Jesus does eventually go to Jerusalem, but it won't be to win popularity like they want. It's going to be to win us, to win you, to win me, all rebels and scandals, to win a people and a family to himself as he is crushed on the cross for our benefit. That's why he's going. He'll be seen by many, but not like the brothers wanted him to be seen. He'll be seen up on a cross. He is about to leave Galilee and never return. 
And that's where we're at in this story. He shows up, the feast. It's a feast of booths or tabernacles, right? And I know how it can get, if you've been a student of the word for any amount of time, can it not get a little confusing? All the different special days and special sacrifices and feasts, they all kind of just run together. What I want you to know about this specific feast is it was the most popular one. This was the one they turned out for in droves, right? People love the Feast of Tabernacle and the Feast of Booths. It's, it, you could use those words interchangeably, right? Now, it was a feast that memorialized or commemorated, okay, the wandering in the desert of the old Israelite nation, the 40 years that they wandered around. This was to commemorate God's provision for them in that time. So one of the ways they would do this is they would build tents, they would just find stuff laying around, like a branch here, twigs there, and they would make a hut. And not, they, they wouldn't, like, do a cruddy job either. I mean, they got to live in this thing for a full week, them and their family probably. So probably some pretty cool huts. I bet they knew how to build these things. Because for seven days, which was the length of this feast, they would be living in this tent. And everybody got jazzed about this. Everybody was excited about this feast, even the city folk, right? The city folk would actually, historically, there are accounts of them going out into the countryside where people were building tents and buying supplies. Like, I'll take that branch and those three twigs, and I'll take that big bucket full of leaves, and I'm going to take it back to my home. And these city folk would build tents on the top of their house or in their courtyards, kind of like what we do today when we go to gander mountain and buy a tent and go pitch it in the backyard with the kids that's what they were doing because camping is fun so people in the countryside camping people in the city they're camping because they are celebrating god's provision of life on the move of life on the move now this festival it also worked and kind of intertwined with the fall harvest which was primarily grapes and olives so they had a lot of food in their camping trip and to end the whole thing on the eighth day was this interesting little ceremony. It was called a water drawing ceremony. And we don't actually have a lot of historical data on this. No one really knows exactly all the nuances and the order of this. But what we do know is it was to point to and celebrate water coming from the rock whenever they were walking around in the wilderness. Whenever Moses hit the rock with the rod, water comes out. The water drawing ceremony on what they would call the great day of this feast was to celebrate that. If you're new to the Bible and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll put the passage up on the screen. It's in Exodus 17. What had happened was, is Moses, by the power of God, had led a people through the Red Sea. They're traipsing around the desert. They run out of water, and they are thirsty and they are angry, they are thangry, and they're ready to kill Moses. They want him dead. They thought, hey, we might have had it bad back in Egypt, but we had water, and now we're going to die. So congratulations. Thanks for your stellar leadership, you know. So they're mad at him, and this is what it says. Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now that staff is the I mean business staff. This is a staff that would split bodies of water and turn into a snake. So when he pulls this staff out, they're watching. God is about to move. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. In Deuteronomy, we find out that's, that's made out of flint. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so inside of the elders of Israel. This was huge. 
for this people. It was a big bookmark in the history of the people. We find it in Deuteronomy. We find it in three Psalms. You see it in different genres of literature written by different people. The Psalm, the psalmist would put it in the 78th Psalm this way. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause water to flow down like rivers. Because think about it, over a million people are walking around. That was not just a small trickling creek. It was a lot of water. I mean, can you just even picture this, first of all? I don't know what he did. I don't know how hard he hit the rock. I don't know if he got into it. I don't know if he tapped it. Something happened. Water to the magnitude of a river, a gushing river, comes out to where it hydrates an entire nation of people. Not a small sight. And it stuck with them. It's stuck in their psyche as a people, their culture. And on the great day of this feast, they celebrate it. Pretty cool setting when you put it all together. This feast, the last ceremony. Think for a moment. No one was really working during this feast. Have you ever been on a camping trip? There's just not a lot of work getting done. Even if you are on a phone, you know you're not getting service up there, right? So you're just sitting around a campfire. And what are you talking about? Talking about stuff, talking about Ryan Lochte and Zika virus. You're talking about all the things that are in the news, the things that intrigue you, the things that make you upset. You're talking about the elections. You're talking about your car repair. You're talking about anything. They were talking about Jesus. It was a provocative lightning rod of a conversation back then. And I bet if you took 10 of them around any given campfire and said, what do you think about Jesus? You're going to get 10 different opinions. Did you kind of pick that up from this passage as we read through it? Some saw Jesus as a, a legend of folklore. They probably hadn't seen Jesus, but their aunt's brother's second cousin had his eyes healed and can see now, even though you weren't there when it happened. You heard about it, and you trust the sources, so you don't have a problem with the guy. Some of them were ready to devote their heart because they did see something. They saw him as a hero, not just a legend. Right? And then some people were mad, and they wanted him stopped. You see a lot of different opinions. Some things really never change, right? Go to a camping party today and, and wait till people are settled and they're not talking about work anymore. Go ahead, bring Jesus up. See, see what they think about Jesus. You will get people that will say, you know, he's just kind of a legend. I mean, I grew up in my grandma's church. I, I, I don't have a problem with Jesus. You will have some people that are going to take their moleskin out and start taking notes because they love Jesus and they can't wait to hear what you have to say. You're going to have some people that just remember they had a dentist appointment that they forgot about and they're packing up their tent. And then you're going to have some people that are belligerent because they can't believe God would allow fill in the blank. So what kind of good news would Jesus be really? You see, with Jesus... It was impossible to not have an opinion. No one had an absence of an opinion. So as I read this passage in its entirety, I am not nearly as interested on spending time on how the world rejects the claim of Jesus as much as I am my heart rejecting Jesus as it grabs for glory, much like my father before me and his father before him and the, just the mystical Sisyphus who shows us very pictorially what it looks like because I do understand that. When I read this story, I see my heart reflected in his brothers. I see my heart reflected in the Pharisees and the officials. Maybe you did too. Maybe you did too. Let's look at the brothers, because my heart can be just like James and Jude. 
I want Jesus to benefit me and do cool things around me without me having to give lordship to him, without me having to really honor him according to his claims. I still want him to do cool stuff, though, but he needs to benefit me. I'm okay with Jesus being glorious, but I gotta get, my boat has to rise with the tide, too. I need some glory as well. Maybe just a slice, but i got to get in the game as well. That's the kind of Jesus I want. Here's an example. Maybe some of you would struggle with this question. What if Jesus used your life to reflect his glory while your glory eroded and dissipated and went away? Think Job. Think sickness, poverty, disease, family coming apart, losing friends, losing job. Your personal glory is evaporating. Would you be comfortable and satisfied if God's glory is reflected more and more in your life as your glory starts to erode away? That's a hard question, isn't it? I'm not always sure I would say yes to that. I think I would struggle through this before I got to my yes. I mean, often, not seldom. Often, not seldom, we see God's glory reflected best in you when you are emptied of your glory. Often, not seldom. I mean, is this not what we see on the cross? Jesus emptied, emptied of what the world would call glorious, emptied of what the world would call awesome, and he's bleeding out, but it happens to be in this punctuated part of history that reflects God's glory most brilliantly. You know, where are you being emptied of your personal glory right now? Consider, where is glory slipping from your grasp? We all want deep value and great visibility, but where is your heart crying out, what about me? What about, oh my gosh, okay, I mean, I'm glad God's getting some props right now in my life, but what about me? What about me? You see, God means for us to stop rolling large boulders up the hill just to find out yet again it's not satisfying at the top whenever we get any kind of glory, and we're really not that glorious at all. He means for us to stop. In fact, we will only find satisfaction in him and in him alone. But, but how do we get there? See, it's so easy to say it, isn't it? It's a truism. I just said something that was very true, biblically true, but how? How, how do we get there? I'm going to talk about that in a second, but before we do, I'd like to show you where I could at least find my heart in the officials as well, not just the brothers. Because my heart can be like those who want to arrest Jesus. They, they were not like the brothers. The brothers said, bring the miracles on. They're pretty cool and entertaining, and, you know, our name value goes up a little bit, so keep it going. The officials wanted him to stop all the miracles. Stop it. And I could find a little bit of that residing in here, too. In my heart, I want to hold on to my performance. I don't want Jesus' performance to steal the show because I think I've got righteousness. I think I've got something to prove. Even if, God, even if you did change my life, even if you did give me grace and do something that I couldn't do, I think I could earn it. I think I could prove that it wasn't a bad move on your part, that I was worth it all. You see, the Pharisees, and some of you know this, and if you're a not a student of the Bible or you're new to the Bible, the Pharisees had an existence that was all established around climbing a ladder. And how you would get from one side of the ladder up to the top of the ladder was based on what you knew and how you acted, your outward public behavior and your knowledge. If you knew enough 
and you behaved a certain way, that's one more rung for you. And it's a rung you're above somebody else too, by the way. Jesus comes along and he says, I'm pushing the ladder over. You don't need it. And you're never going to find satisfaction at the top of that ladder. It's definitely not how you impress God. I'm going to be impressive to God because you never could. And they wanted to kill him for it. Because he was saying, I'm removing your performance. Your performance does not grant you grace from God. And they, they just couldn't, they couldn't do with that. And I get this. I get this. I'm not always comfortable with Jesus performing for me. I think if you're honest, you'd say you're not either. I must show my righteousness. I've got to climb ladders myself. Do you not get through moments or get through days where you can almost, it's almost like in the Olympics, right? You're in gymnastics, and you're, you're firing down the, the line, that little lane, and you hit that vault. And you do 16 flips in the air, and you stick the dismount. Don't you just feel like at the end of the day, you're kind of peeking over to the judges to see what numbers come up, right? Nine, ten, eight, two, two. I was telling my wife the other day, it, it is amazing to me, you know, these, these, these almost kids, they're flying down and they're doing a billion flips in the air and then they stick the dismount, but their foot went like 20 degrees sideways so they get like a seven because they stink, you know? <laughs> they're like these highly talented athletes. But I know how that feels because I feel like when I get through a day, I want the 10. I want the 10, but we never feel like we're a 10, do we? So we gotta keep doing it. We gotta keep doing it because we feel like we stink Here's an example. Some of us in this room, right now even, are not comfortable in our own skin. We're not comfortable in our own skin. We feel like we're only valuable to God as much as we can clean ourselves up. That God loves you, but really a future version of you, a more lovable version of you. God doesn't love the 1.0 version of who you are, now, he's excited about the 7.0 version of who you are, and that's where you'll find him. He's waiting down there at the 7.0 version. But he's not where you're at now because you're too dirty. But he's waiting for you. Love is waiting for you. Grace is waiting for you. Isn't that how we feel? He couldn't possibly love me where I'm at now, but maybe a better version of me. Maybe God could be excited about that. Friends, this is why you don't pray in public. This is why some of you struggle with praying in public. You have all caught yourself in the middle of the daunted prayer ring at one point or another, haven't you? Someone starts praying, and then you pick up quickly. It's going sequentially. Oh, my gosh, it's going in a circle. So what do you do? I know what you do. You start counting people, don't you? One, two, three, four, five. I'm number seven. Number two is praying. I'm running out of time, right? Because what are you doing? You're, you're trying to come up with a Grammy speech. You're not even thinking about what they're talking about. You're not listening. You're not enjoying prayer. You're not like, yes, Lord. You're thinking, okay, he already said that. She already said this. If I say this, I'll sound stupid. That's what you're doing. You're rehearsing something. And you hate it, don't you? Why are you doing that? Consider why you're doing that. Just for a second. It's because you don't want to sound stupid. You don't want people to think that you sound stupid. And you might not even want to rip God off. God deserves a, a well-polished prayer. I'm here to lead people in prayer. It has to be well done. I think we need more unpolished prayers, don't you? We feel like God would appreciate a better version of us. One that could pray quickly without, without preparing. One that is just kind of natural. And that's how we see everybody else that prays in public. Like it just comes right out of their insides, and we think, I'm not like that. 
I'm not praying in public. Not until I be conversion 7.0. Then maybe. Then maybe. Right? It, this is also why we don't contribute or try to lead in community settings. Because we feel like we're not smart enough. Hear me now. Sounds just like a Pharisee. We're not smart enough and we don't behave well enough. That's version 8.0. I'm version 1.0. God's not excited about this. There's no way I could lead anybody else. I have to wait till I get down the line and climb up the ladder. That's when God will honor me, and that's when it would be proper for me to lead other people around me, to make disciples, to minister to a peer, right? You know, as a church, me and Chris have been looking at the different missional communities and we've got three that are, that are growing a little bit faster. Two need to, they needed to split into and plant different groups probably a few months ago. And we have some that are coming up, and I think it'll probably be within the next few months that they're going to need to plant one. But what that means is, is you've got to have another leader. You have to have a couple more hosts, some co-leaders. An extra group doesn't mean just one extra leader. It means like three that you have to develop in order for it to be healthy, right? I already know. This is what 20 years in the ministry will do to you. I already know what I'm going to hear when I'm sitting across the table and saying, we'd love for you to consider leading in this capacity. I know what you're going to tell me. I don't know enough, and I've got a lot of problems. Which makes you perfect, by the way, for this. I don't know enough, and I've got a lot of problems. What you're saying is, is I am version 1.0. Luke, Chris, what you really want is version 8.0. God is not excited about me here. He's not present with me right now. He's present down there. That's when I'm qualified. That's when I'm valuable. This is why we struggle in these things. Listen, I love and appreciate how when Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We all know that. We don't even have to go there in the Bible right now, right? That's what he says. He booms from the heavens. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But, but here's the thing. As you become a Christian, you are baptized into the person of Jesus Christ. This means that as a Christian, you don't have a Jesus costume on, but when God sees you, his affections are riled as if he sees his own son. He, he, it's, as, it's as if he's saying, you belong to me, and I'm encouraged over you. This is my daughter. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm excited about you now. Not because you're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. He's not loving a future version of you. He loves you right now. Right now. God does not get to your devotional quiet time faster when you're version 8.0 than he does when you're version 1.0. And he's not more excited to meet with that version of you than he is this current version of you right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's important. It's important. This is how you enjoy Jesus. I'll tell you what, let me do this before I move on. Let me just pray. I know there's some of you in the room that struggle with this. I'm just going to, a quick prayer before we move on. Father, I thank you that what you did for us valiantly removes the ladder for me. No longer is your affection based on what I know and what I can do. Your affection towards me is based on the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ. I don't always believe that. I still try to stick to dismount. I'm still hoping for great ratings. I'm still looking around. I'm still, still growing. I, I can forget this sometimes. So help me, Father. Help us in this room that we would enjoy you where we're at right now. 
That way our growth comes from enjoying you instead of trying to impress you like a Pharisee. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Some of us never rejoice in our wins if they're not our own wins. In other words, a win that does not belong to you belongs to somebody else, right? And that's glory they're getting that you're not getting. See what I'm saying? So they don't get any high fives or likes or anything like that. This is why people get depressed on Facebook, by the way. You go on Facebook, I know what happens to you. You start looking on Facebook and you see, hey, we're in Bermuda, you know, or hey, I just did this, or I just finished this big race, or I just, you know, thumbs me up. I mean, you you see all these huge moments and you're like, gosh, my life kind of stinks, man. I'm a little depressed because I don't have these awesome things happening to me. I mean, my kids don't look like that on the first day of school. You know, you start seeing things that make you feel like you're less. And do you not have a little bit of an internal depression come out? Does that not happen? It happens. You don't want to give them a thumbs up. They get no high fives at all. And when you tell them that you are happy for them, you don't really mean it, do you? You're saying it through grit teeth. I'm so happy for you. Which is code for, I hope you trip on the concrete and knock that silly smile off your face and join the rest of us. That's what you really mean. But this is how the Pharisees operated. They weren't just climbing ladders, they were throwing elbows. And they were hoping to crawl over each other because it meant that they were higher than everybody else and those below them were losing. It was an exercise in gaining glory. Their whole system. Hear me though, what if What if you were so satisfied in God's glory that you weren't threatened by the success of others? It's hard to imagine. You think you're there now. Stop lying. Well, Luke, I do celebrate everybody else's success. Right. Not as much as you do your own, though. Right? What if, though? And what if you did it not because you were behaving well, but what if you did it because you were so satisfied with God that you just didn't care? Nothing could outcompete that. I think some of us in here are not comfortable being still because being still ultimately means you're losing. Now listen, this is my favorite passage in the Bible and I don't have time to go there. I'd be tempted to preach forever. But the story of Mary and Lazarus sitting at the feet of Jesus as he's just dishing it out there and they're loving every word and they're just drinking deep from all of his teaching and then what's Martha doing? She's spinning around the room, refilling tea, Bussing the table, because you know how Christians can be at restaurants, right? We need more tea, and we need you to get rid of the empty plates. So Martha was busy, moving around, active. I love this story. It's one of my favorite ones. Now, we want to be like Martha, many of us, doing something, busy, active, because sitting means you're not performing, and not performing means you're not measuring up. And not measuring up means you're failing. And if you're failing, you can't be a hero. If you're not a hero, you're not getting any trophies. If you're not getting any trophies, you have no glory. See, Martha was doing that to gain glory to a certain extent. And I think the Marthas in the room know what that means, right? 
You see, usually when I teach this, the Marys in the room love it. They love this kind of a teaching because they're like, yes, I could keep loafing. I don't have to do anything. Someone will always come behind me and take care and just do it. Just learning from Jesus is, is all I'm supposed to do. That's what the Marys do. And then the Marthas usually don't like this teaching very much because they're like, hey, what happened? I mean, what she's doing is important as well, you know? I mean, you wouldn't get anything done without the Marthas. You get two different aspects to this. And I always wondered what it would be like to walk into their rooms as teenage girls, Mary and, Mary and Martha. What would you see? I already know what you'd see. You'd walk into to, to, to Martha's room, and the bed would be made perfectly. All the toys would be put away. She'd have trophies from all of the track meets and her, her mathlete awards on the other wall. They wouldn't be on the same wall because that's not, that's not left brain enough, you know. I mean, she would have it down pat. And if you went into Mary's room, you'd have to push the door open because of all the toys and blankets because she's an artist. You know what I'm saying? That's the way I think they would be. You see, being still is for hippie losers with no trophies on their shelf. But activity, now that'll make a hero, won't it? Doing things, accomplishing things make a hero. I love this quote by J.R. Vassar. I know the last two weeks I've pushed a small little book called Just Do Something. I'd love to push this one, too, called Glory Hunger. If you've not read this book, buy it and read it. Don't just put it on the shelf. It's a fantastic book. J.R. Vassar says this. He says, just as Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover up their lost glory, we continue to sow fig leaves in hopes of compensating for lost glory. We hope to be praised for the fig leaves. But fig leaves wither, and the praise is never enough. We think if we can string together enough accolades, accomplishments, possessions, beauty, physique, intelligence, or exploits, that we will build an image upon which the court of public opinion might render a positive verdict and satisfy the glory hunger that gnaws at us. Friends, this means no rest. It means not being still. You have to be moving. You have to be in the high gear at all times because there is no glory in resting. That's what we tell ourselves. Another side trail, I don't have a lot of time to even think about running through, but resting for some of you is a little bit of a four-letter word. You won't stop activity because you, you leak glory when you do so. And you see those who rest around you, the Marys, you see those as the ones who fall behind, those in lack. I want you to examine whether or not your negligence in resting, whether it's I just don't sleep enough because I think sleep is a, worse, a waste of time or I don't take a day off or I don't take a Sabbath or I don't take a vacation, whatever it is, whatever form of rest you neglect, consider whether or not it is you having a glory party dressed up a little bit like the American dream. Not very biblical at all. Just consider it. You see, to read this passage all 52 verses, and think that you would not have been in one of these groups is to give yourself way too much credit. Way too much credit. This passage is full of players refusing to let you just sit in the audience. You quickly see, realistically, we're an antagonist in this passage. We hunt for glory. We clamor for glory. We steal glory from God. So again, what can we do? These are all true statements. I don't think anyone's going to really disagree much with what I've said, but what do we do? Because I feel a little bit helpless if I just stop there. Right? Jesus tells us in the 37th verse, 
Very key passage or part of this passage. On the last day of the feast. So what's happening on the great day, the last day of the feast? The water drawing ceremony. Important to know that. Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now that doesn't sound too shocking or scandalous to us. It just sounds like a Jesus-ism, doesn't it? Like he's always saying something kind of vague like that. Like we kind of understand what he's saying, but we're sure there's a lot there that we don't know yet, right? I am the way. I am the truth. Come and drink from me. You must eat of my body. We see things like that, and we scratch our head and think, I think I know where he's going. I'm just going to keep moving, you know? And that's what he sounds like he's doing right here. But it is scandalous. If you were there at this feast, all their jaws are on the ground. Because what he is effectively saying is that rock that you guys are hand, or just, that rock that we're all celebrating, that's me. It's me. I'm the rock. Paul actually says it a little bit later. 1 Corinthians, I think, 10. Jesus is the rock that was in the desert. So he's throwing it down right now. He's being very scandalous in what he says. In other words, Jesus is the brilliant climax to that stunning scene in Exodus. A stunning scene with a river gushing out of a rock of flint. And, and hungry people are climbing over each other to get their, their canteens filled and to drink deeply and to store up for the future, to be hydrated, hear it, to be satisfied. All of that, that huge scene, it was just a sign. It's pointing over the hill to a time where another would be struck, not by a rod, but by these murderous hands, by my crude instruments. Another rock would be struck, not to just flow rivers of water to satisfy, but to flow rivers of blood to satisfy more deeply. Friends, that's where Jesus is driving this conversation. That's where he's carrying us, blood from a king. This is why back in the 1700s, William Cowper wrote this song. We sing it here occasionally, but the lyric that stands out is, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. He's the rock. This is why we also see a, a chapter before this. You've already heard it taught how when Jesus comes, he says, unless someone eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But if you do those things, then you will have life in you. I will rise, raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is doing is a masterful job of answering our glory question, the formula we can't bring a solution to. We keep rolling that stupid boulder up the hill looking for, and he's answering it right here. He says, I am the way back into that relationship with God in the cool of the garden, the one that Adam and Eve used to experience and be satisfied. Jesus says, I am the way that you get back through that. You've got to go through me. And in that place, in that garden, no more boulders to be pushed. You know, a really beautiful way to see this is back in Genesis 3, 24. You see this odd, I guess it's one sentence. It is, it's one sentence. It's interesting. It says this, after Adam sinned, God drove out the man. And at the east of the, or at the, east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That means you're not getting back in. What Jesus is effectively saying there in that feast is, I am stepping into that sword so that you can enter the garden and find the tree of life. He is 
undoing what Adam did. He is reestablishing that life of satisfying glory with God himself. That's what he's doing for you and me so that we today forever can walk in the cool of the garden satisfied with God's glory that ours becomes insignificant, that we develop no hunger at all for our own glory anymore because we can't take our eyes off of his. I agree with the soldiers in this passage as they come back and they say, no one has ever taught like this man. You see, they went out there to arrest him. It's funny that he arrested them. They come back empty-handed. No one has ever taught like this man. Is that not true? No one has ever lived like this man. No one has ever died like this man. This man took all the sins in human history, from the very first sin to the very last time someone clicks on an image they shouldn't see, balls it all up in one moment and sets it on our king that he blows up and gives us eternity. Who dies like that? Who lives again like this man as God's spirit raises him from the cold slab? Who serves a people not worthy like this man? There is no one like this man. What this means for you and me is we could rest in our own skin, not striving to be a more lovable version of who we are today. It means we could stop judging others out of a deep need to be better than them. It means we could celebrate everyone else's wins because we have no glory to lose. We've already surrendered it. We're so intoxicated with God's glory, we don't really care. It means we could sit at Jesus' feet and stop trying to be the hero and trophy collector in the room. It means that we can be satisfied in personal loss and our own glory leaking as long as God's is expanding. This is what this means. No one has ever, ever taught like this man. No one. Listen, we have a lot to repent for, obviously. And shortly, we're going to be able to do that. Because the team will be up here shortly, the music will be playing shortly, and you will get to center yourself around the music. You'll get to center yourself around um, uh, praying, around praying over each other. But those tables in the back, with, with a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, you get to center yourself around that too. A king emptied of his, wor- his, his worldly glory. A, a body that's been cracked and pulled apart and doesn't appear to have any glory to it. Blood drained from Emmanuel's veins. It doesn't appear to have any glory. And when you take communion, whether you take it by yourself or with your family or in community, you can take it around a God that is glorious. Not just out of worship, but out of excitement and enjoyment, which is the best way to worship. But before we do that, and before we all stand, I have one quick piece of application. Jesus was not just looking back to the rock that was struck, but he was also looking ahead to whenever he would fill a church full of rivers of water themselves to image what God has done, right? We see this when Peter in Acts 2 pulls deep from the Old Testament and tells everybody when the church is birthed, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those last days. I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. You see, the Father gave Jesus, the Father gave the spirit to Jesus without limit, and Jesus gives it to you and me without reservation. And we carry it. 
we carry this welling up inside of us. And when we carry our message, we're carrying it to a world of brothers and a world of officials, and you're going to find rejection, mockery, laughter, hatred. You're going to find rejection. Rejection is the number one reason we won't disciple each other. I mean really disciple each other. I don't mean just throwing a passage out. I mean really getting in there and saying some hard things that you're not quite sure about, but you suspect. Things that maybe the other person hasn't said, but things that you've read between the lines on. The reason you don't act courageously is because you fear rejection. It's also the number one reason we don't evangelize the lost. Because they'll reject us, likely, and we'll have a glory leak. We'll spring a leak. We won't be as visible. We won't be as valuable to that person's eyes. We fear rejection. They will cut you, mock you, want you gone, even people as close as brothers. Do you see that in this passage? Now, this is probably the more important thing that you'll hear me say, besides the gospel itself. I am not suggesting you just leave this room and grit through it. Jesus found rejection. I'm going to find rejection. I'm going to go find me some rejection. I'm going to say what needs to be said, and if they give me the bird or something like that, good, man. I'm going to go find someone else to give me the bird because, after all, the nails were sharp, man. I mean, so I can, I can take a little bit of pain. I'm not asking you to do that because is that not just falling back into a pharisaical life? I could behave better. I could, I could climb that ladder. I could get one more rung up. I just take a little bit of pain. What if you find God's glory so much more appetizing that you just don't care about the glory that you lose? Then you're not gritting your teeth as you carry a message. You're doing it because you can't help not doing it, because you just enjoy God's glory so much you want everyone around you to take part in the same thing. What if that was the foundation of good evangelism? What if that was the foundation of talking to a neighbor? I don't think you'd just drop as many beads of sweat if that was the case. Because if they reject you, what do you lose? What do you lose? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. What if we enjoy God's glory so much that we can't stand the thought of watching brothers and sisters in Christ around us push boulders to the top of the hill over and over again? I know you see them, your friends, the ones you do life with, pushing boulders. You can see it, can't you? They're looking. They're looking for glory. They're looking for satisfaction. They're not finding it. They get the dumb rock to the top of the hill, rolls right back down. What do they do? They double down. They're going to push harder. And they just keep doing it over and over again. What if, what if you stepped into their life not to be tough, not to, not to make Jesus like you more, but you did it because you were so fascinated with God's glory that you can't stand the fact of one more day them not being as fascinated as you are. Does that not change the basis in which we do even peer discipleship? Go ahead and stand with me. i got to land this. I don't want to go back to living like a Pharisee. I don't want shame-based obedience. The things that I do, the things that you do, let it be from a gospel centrality, one that we enjoy the presence and the glory of God. I'm going to read this to you as we pray. This is in Revelation 22. 
as God looks even, even more forward to another river. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for this word to my heart. You have ministered greatly to me in this passage, and you have shown me how much I need to surrender, how hungry I really am for glory. I'm a fool. I'm a fool if I, if I tell myself and I tell others that I'm totally satisfied in you. I'm a fool. 